Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, March 5th, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, we discuss the upcoming one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic in Iowa, and Chuck Grassley is questioning during a hearing on the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for Lee Enterprises. With me this week are Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Sioux Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Aaron. And also Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. As a reminder, you can subscribe to the On Iowa Politics podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. First up this week, this coming Monday marks the one-year anniversary of the first confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Iowa. Everybody remember that ship that came back from an Egyptian mm-hmm. cruise? Seems mm-hmm. like more. Yep, because there was a Cedar Falls woman on that Oh, one. there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, no, never yeah. mind. That was the one that was in California. I'm getting my ships mixed up. That's how it was done. <laughs> too, too there were a ships. lot of infected ships. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems more like a decade ago than a, than a year ago sometimes, but... Anyway, since then, the pandemic has claimed the lives of more than 5,500 Iowans and caused more than 360,000 infections. And by the way, we want to encourage everybody starting Sunday to pay especially close attention to your local Gazette or Lee newspaper. Journalists from those papers are working together on a special project to note the one-year mark of the pandemic in Iowa. Uh, It will be a series of stories and online content that will begin publishing Sunday and run daily through the following weekend. And I can promise you it will be well worth your time and attention. Amy, you're working on a couple of stories for this project. So let's talk a little bit about each of those. I wanted to start with uh, the so-called COVID long haulers, those folks who just can't seem to shake the virus once they become infected. And and you'd actually done some previous reporting on this too. So so tell us what you learned about these folks. Yeah, we started hearing about people that had been going through so-called long COVID. And so I I finally decided to start reaching out to some of these people just to see what they were going through. And their symptoms, like they run the gamut. I mean, they're the normal COVID symptoms that you would sort of expect maybe would be hanging on a little bit, like a cough, you know, a chronic cough, um, shortness of breath. You know, you're not able to really do a lot unless you you have a whole day to lay down type of thing. Um, But also very unexplained things. Obviously, we all heard about the loss of taste and smell, which turns out to be kind of possibly a neurological condition. Um, but they were also getting other sorts of conditions that maybe pointed to that the immune system was misfiring or or the virus had gotten past the blood brain barrier. Things like lesions on the skin or um, just joint pain. You know, brain fog is a lot of what people were talking about where they would just have days where they couldn't do basic math. They couldn't remember that word, you know, very sort of like early dementia syndrome that was happening. Um, and, and really they were going to their doctors and their doctors were saying, we still don't know what's going on. This is so new. We don't, we don't even barely know how to treat regular COVID. We're just learning about that. We certainly don't know what this is. Um, but doctors are saying, you know, this is real. I talked to a physician down at the uh, University of Iowa Respiratory Health Clinic, which they set up specifically for these people. Um, and they're just sort of, uh, they're, they're asking if they obviously want to be part of a research study, but they're treating them regardless, um, just to try to get a handle on what is this, what exactly is happening to people. And they are starting to find patterns. And doctors are saying, this isn't just people, you know, that are weenies that are faking it. You know, these, these people have a, a real thing that's, that's still occurring and it's occurring in a large enough percentage of the population 
that it could seriously be a health issue for years to come. And and when we say long haulers, and, and forgive me if you said this and I missed it, how, how long or what are some examples you heard of of how long people have been dealing with these ongoing symptoms? Some people said that they would have symptoms for a few weeks or months afterwards, but there were people that I talked to that had gotten it back in May and were still dealing with symptoms that would come and go seemingly at random. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so that's one for folks to watch out for. Amy, another story story you're working on. Uh, we'll talk about how nursing homes and other long-term care facilities were just devastated by this pandemic. Uh, that one's not running until a little later in the series. So I don't know how much you've uh, uh, groundwork you got to work off of yet, but uh, uh, I, I, regardless, I know it's something you're familiar with. Uh, what, what do you expect uh, readers to be able to to hear about in that story? I actually got off the phone. I was talking with um, a couple of administrators yesterday um, just to try to get a handle on you know what all they went through because I, we're doing this for a lot of industries, like you mentioned, but nursing homes were really sort of the petri dish. We did not want to get COVID nineteen into nursing. Um, that was the deadliest place that we could get it in. And we saw that happen when it did get into places and it was allowed to run rampant. There were hugely bad outcomes. And when people say bad outcomes, it means that people were getting sick and people were dying. Um, People obviously in these places are generally older. They generally have more medical conditions. They're one of the most highest risk populations. But in addition to that, you can't just lock them down, right? You've also really got to have an employee base that takes it very seriously. And a lot of these nursing homes did have that. I mean, people go to work and it's their job, but they also really care about people that they work with. And a lot of them, when they realized that they were maybe an asymptomatic carrier, were just devastated to learn about that and knew that they were working at that time. So it, it was a really tough thing, I think, on a lot of people, but especially for, for residents, for employees, and also for for family, you know, that, that wasn't allowed to visit. Um, and even now, there's still a few restrictions in place, um, but places like Western Home and Cedar Falls have said, we are starting to allow more visitors again. You know, they were able to get the vaccine first, and a lot of people were vaccinated. Um, and now that a lot of these people's family members who might be over 65 as well are also getting vaccinated, that's also helping them to be able to ease these restrictions because the mental health of the, the residents too. I mean, one administrator told me yesterday, some of these residents would rather not go on living than not see their family. It was just a really tough situation all around for them. Yep, yep, that, that's such a great point. And that's, that was uh, early in this, um, that was one of the most common questions I would hear would be when are families going to be able to see their loved ones at nursing homes again? Uh, it was so tough either way. And then you have to try and balance that with uh, kind of what you described, a Petri dish, I mean, you take what we know about the virus now, something that spreads rapidly, especially indoors, and the most mm-hmm. vulnerable people are older um, people. I mean, that that's that's a nursing home described to a T. You know, they were talking about silver linings, too, and it's tough to find. But but one of the silver linings is really just not only looking at your employees is like so valuable, I mean, and, and probably worthy of more than than they're being paid currently, worthy of more resources to help them, but also just like in the ways that we've expanded telehealth. Um, and hospitals were talking about this too, just that they were just trying to get telehealth operational, but everything from, from legislation at state and federal level to insurance providers to just adoption by providers themselves and patients was just really limiting it. And now it's exploded. I mean, you saw uh, hospitals... And nursing homes just like overnight set up these systems 
where they were able to get virtual visits, not only from, from family, but virtual visits from doctors. Um, and, and that, they think, is really going to be pushed forward in the future. All right. And, and Amy, before we move on from you, I want to ask you about one more story that your paper, I know, is working on, the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Um, and, and you mentioned talking about other businesses and industries uh, that we're exploring here that were devastated by the pandemic. The other big one, obviously, food processing plants. Um, I know you've done a lot of reporting on that issue over the past year, just kind of for maybe people who didn't follow it as closely back then, or maybe have forgotten because, because this happened early on in the pandemic. I mean, we're talking, you know, late spring, early summer last year, just how bad did it get uh, for some of these plants? You've got a Tyson plant. I mean, it did get bad. Um, You know, there were out of, you know, over 2000 workers, over a thousand of them um, at, at one point last spring had already had coronavirus and this was of May. So it, it was, it just, ran rampant in there for, for probably a number of reasons. Um, you know, pe- people in, in those settings have to work very closely together. Um, they, you know, they have, you know, congregate break settings. Um, and, and even just like Tyson themselves was saying, even when they go home, you know, they might live in, in congregate settings, you know, that have a lot more people in a residence than we would, you know, normally think of in a residence. It was just sort of this ticking time bomb, and then it went off. And of course, people died. Um, at least six, um, just directly from from Tyson workers. And so, it was really important, I think, to see them finally get the vaccine, which they were able to do um, starting this weekend. I think a little bit last week. So, so that was really good to finally see that that the manufacturing workers that have really just literally put their lives on the line have finally. Um, been able to get vaccinated because it's been a long, long, tough road for them. Yeah. Especially for those types of people that we just talked about. Um, and like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a ray of hope for all of us, but especially for those folks. Uh, Todd, let's bring you in now. I'm going to start out uh, really open-ended here. We're, we're one year into this thing. What has struck you most about uh, what we've learned about and what we've experienced uh, over this past year of this pandemic? Well, I've, I've been struck a lot because my glasses are fogged up a lot. I wear a mask. I'm running into things. That's that's probably that's a fairly minor. You gotta get the nose piece right. Yeah, I know that yeah, struggle. Yeah. yeah, so it's a fairly minor problem. But I thought I'd bring it up because I know it's you know scientists are looking for a cure. Uh, I, I think you know, and this is kind of alludes to what uh, Amy was talking about. I I think what what struck me the most is just how the pandemic sort of, you know, really showed us, you know, in stark terms, some of the problems that we sort of suspected we had and that people were sort of working on, but then this happened. And I'm thinking of, you know, workers that don't have sick leave and, you know, the meat packing plants. I mean, we, we've, we've left basically regulations to the companies. We've, you know, Congress has been willing over the years to speed up the, the lines and to, you know, the, the, to move them closer together and make the work more difficult. And and then when the pandemic happened, I mean, you know, our, our state government didn't, you know, trusted the companies and it turned out the companies weren't, you know, performing in an, at an optimal level on keeping their workers safe. Uh, nursing homes, we've, we've uh, seen a, a reduction in oversight and regulation over the last couple of decades. 
And I think that that came back to bite us when we when we needed uh, to do more to keep nursing home residents safe. Uh, and, and you know the food system that we've talked about before that you've got a, a small number of companies that control these packing plants, and so if you lose one packing plant to illness, it causes a collapse that forces farmers to euthanize hogs, and it you know it, it causes shortages right. of meat. And so I mean there are just all of these lessons that we've learned that we, again, we suspected there were problems and people have been saying there are problems and warning us about these problems. And then this happened. And I, and, you know, I think that's one of the disappointing things about, you know, the legislative session going on is that they're not really addressing a lot of that stuff. They're sort of uh, sticking to the status quo. And I think there's a lot of opportunities that we could have taken to look at what happened and, and, and fix some of that stuff. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question to you. There is is uh, you list things uh, that, that's good that we've ID'd all those things, but have we come up with any solutions for any of those? It's... Yeah. Well, I think there are some moves at the federal level to you know look at workplace safety in meatpacking plants, um, and there you know, but a lot of this is state level regulation. I mean, we're the closest to the to these. Uh, to these facilities. And yeah, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite. I mean, the industries that these, you know, that own these facilities have been cultivating political influence for decades. They've given lots of money to candidates. They've, you know, when bills are being written, they have legislators and governor's ears uh, to tell them what they want in them. So that's a, that's going to be a tough infrastructure of influence to sort of break and if you know if a pandemic can't do it, then I'm I'm not sure it can be it can be broken. Yeah, um, Todd, I wanted to ask uh, you as well about the state's response to the pandemic. Um, Governor Kim Reynolds and the the state public health department, um, just as kind of in the way of a quick synopsis of the highlights, did the governor closed schools and many businesses early on, uh, but she resisted a shelter at home order, which some other states did. Uh, and there's differing opinions on whether that was whether those were a good idea in the long run. Um, Governor Reynolds also resisted a face mask requirement until November uh, when cases, hospitalizations and deaths finally surged. Um, you look at the data for the course of the pandemic, Iowa has the 16th highest per capita COVID death rate. Um, mm. But on the other hand, the state's finances and economy overall have not been badly damaged. Um so I guess what you consider more important, Todd, how would you rate the states and the governor's pandemic response? Well, I, I think when I look back on it, I think I, it sort of is encapsulized in one period in the fall where, I mean, we had seen uh, a spike in cases at campuses on university campuses, and she closed some bars in certain counties. Well, then in October, she opened them back up. And about that time, she you know, began traveling the state, campaigning for President Trump and for other Republicans at a lot of events where she was maskless. She, you know, there was a Trump rally that was most of the people there were maskless. So they were kind of shunning the public health advice out there politicking. And during that month of October, there were clear signs that something bad was happening. Hospitalizations began to rise. Case numbers began to rise. You could tell that this sort of potential spike was coming and they didn't do anything. They held 
no, almost no press conferences to answer questions about it. And then in November it blew up and, 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 you know, hundreds of people died during that spike, if not thousands. So, I mean, it just seemed like a lot of what her motivations were, were not public health driven. They were sort of politically driven. And I think the fact that she was campaigning during this month when maybe we could have at least, if not headed off the spike, at least maybe blunted its sharp ascent, uh, we didn't do it. And we we announced a mask, a sort of an odd Swiss cheese mask mandate after, I mean, after hospitalizations had, you know, jumped over, I think over a thousand, there were more than a thousand people hospitalized. I think, I forget how high that actually got, but it was, yeah. So, yeah, I just, I mean, it was a very Trump-like response. You sort of tried to keep businesses going and tried to, uh, you know, sort of send the message that we've got to live with this. It's not that big a deal. But, you know, instead of doing the things that we might have been able to do to control the spread better. And, yeah, we're, I mean, we're seeing that now. She's pulled back all, all uh, public health measures that were in place. The little, the, the, the Swiss cheese mass mandate and, and social distancing and, and, and group limits. So uh, hopefully this will work out, which is kind of what we were saying during the whole pandemic. Well, I mean, I hope she's right. And again and again, we did, it turned out she wasn't, but yeah, with, with vaccinations increasing in Johnson and Johnson out there, I'm optimistic, but yeah, I don't think, I don't think this was an example of, of, super competent state government. Uh, so, so to fill in the bl- blank there, uh, at its peak, we had more than 1,500 um, Iowans, Iowa people uh, hospitalized uh, for a stretch of a few days uh, there. And, and you're, you're right, Todd, boy, I was at that Trump rally. Um, as I was putting together some of the work for this project, and one of the things I was working on was a timeline and going back and, you know, the big headlines throughout the course of the pandemic. And, and I was able then as, as I collected those things to reflect back on when, you know, when in the middle of it, you kind of don't have the same view as the benefit of uh, being able to step back now and look back and, and boy, to think about that, that Trump rally and um, all the people that were there and very few wearing masks and, and to know now what was going on. And we, like you said, it's not like we didn't know at the time, there was a pretty good sense of what was going on, but now we know for sure. Um, how bad things were starting to get at that point. And, and, and to think of that event now, it's, 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 it's chilling and, and, and upsetting uh, really. And, and, and unfortunate. I was going to say, how do you, uh, Todd, how do you see the, the calculation to open it up to people under 65 now um, with a variety of conditions, including um, a BMI of over 25, which doesn't seem like very high to me. And also, oh, um, that's, you know, that's, that's, my, that's my golden ticket. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you so, think yeah, that well, was what, very broad to me? Yeah, I think I think with the Johnson and Johnson shot, maybe they're feeling like they're going to get more vaccine and can spread it out that much. I think what are we supposed to? I, I forget how many hundreds of thousands of doses we're supposed to be getting soon. Uh, and the governor took the Johnson and Johnson one, so so that you know, uh, people would see that it's a high quality product. Cause you know, you've, you've got, you've got 
I've heard people say that, you know, people are saying, no, I want the good stuff. Well, then I'm thinking that's not going to be a, that's not going to be a problem in Iowa. I mean, Bush Light is the most popular beer in this. State, so I don't I don't think vaccine light is going to be a, a real issue for people. They don't want to get started. Well, as I have pointed out, it, it does pre- pre- still prevent against you know. Oh yeah. Serious hot. Yeah, it's maybe like you'll still get a lot of cases. Yeah, it's almost a hundred percent effective against death and and hospitalization i mean that's and right. those are that's what you want to avoid yep and and that's what the state public health folks uh stressed um both during that um i guess not during the press conference it was afterwards um kelly garcia the state public health director often comes out and kind of follows up with any questions reporters have and she was very much stressing exactly what you guys just said that uh, don't get hung up on that 70 percent number um <laughs> Yeah. What, what all of these vaccines are doing is keeping everybody out of the hospital um, and keeping everybody out of the funeral. Uh, and that's they mentioned what, that the flu vaccine is only about 70% exactly, effective, exactly. which I didn't even know, right? Yeah. So, I yep. mean, yeah. if you think about it that way. Yep, exactly. Plus, it'll be a lot easier for rural hospitals and, exactly. and pharmacies and storage doesn't have to be frozen. Well, yep, yep, and and it, and with the one shot, you don't have to make two appointments and have people travel right. however far they have to. Right. Um, one more quick uh, question on this topic. I'm curious to get both you guys' thoughts on uh, this. Todd, we'll start with you. One of the people that one of the things that people kind of talk about is how so much changed during the pandemic, and and how many of those changes um, have maybe been for the good, and and that will stick around even once we're out of the woods on this thing. Um, so l- let me just, and, and it doesn't even have to be politics that the, the world is your oyster. Uh, uh, give me one thing that you think uh, uh, the pandemic changed or created that you think is part of our world now, uh, even once we're done with this thing. Am I first? Yeah. Sorry, yes. Todd, you go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think one thing is that people really learn to appreciate uh the, you know, the, the state park system, the open spaces, the, I mean, I think going forward when there's going to be choices to make investments in some of those outdoor spaces, I think people have, have really embraced, uh, they'll be probably more likely to appreciate that. Uh, the other thing, I, and part of this, I don't know that they'll keep this in place. I, I like in the legislature that you can watch subcommittee meetings and, and proceedings online. I think that's something that they should try to to keep going forward because I think it allows a lot more people to see what's happening, which is maybe the, the last thing they want, but, <laughs> but they, they could at least, you know, give it a, give it a try. I, I, I agree with that. And let me just add that. I hope that they continue to do that, but that they also um, go back to relaxing and go back to the normal rules for the press, because I, I oh, appreciate yeah. what they're doing right now and moving us off of press row and, and into the gallery. Um, I'm okay with that during a pandemic. It's just uh, the reporter and me can't help but be nervous that that's going to mm-hmm. be a permanent. And I hope that's not the case. And I don't want to imply anybody suggested that because nobody has. Um, we haven't had that conversation yet. Believe me, we will. I can, I can assure you as president of the Iowa Capital Press Association, we will be having that conversation with legislative leaders. I hope that, that the, um, that the folks uh, are willing to go back to normal and, and the press hasn't been permanently moved off of press row. Amy, how about you? What's 
what's the new normal from the pandemic that you see? I'll agree with Todd on the opening up um, virtual sessions and go one step further. I love the way that that city councils have also opened up um, to Zooms and virtual sessions. Keep in mind, this helps people that can't get out of their homes, are traveling, or have other reasons that they're not able to be on site for, for a city council meeting. And these are really, you know, crucial meetings that that deal with everything from the state of your roads to your taxes. And so definitely getting more people um, an option to go to these meetings if they can't physically go to these meetings, I think would be amazing to keep going. I was going to say, I, th- I think the DOT has already said that they're going to keep the system they have now where you basically make an appointment to get your driver's license. I mean, it's just really made things more efficient and uh, you don't have to sit there and wait for your number to be called and all those things. So I think that's, (laughs) they're probably going to keep that, which is good. news. I mean, I I love hanging out at the DMV as much as anyone, but. (laughs) Just to say not at all. (laughs) And restaurants may be keeping takeout, you know. Yes. That, well, that'll yeah, be we're on the app. Yep. I think so they did, then they, they passed a bill in June that you could still sell like drinks, right? There you yep. go. <laughs> to go. <laughs> what else do you need? It's, it's, it's a brave new world, man. The 16 ounce margarita bottle is lives on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What one uh, quick non COVID topic to cover this week we wanted to talk about. Um, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, Iowa's longtime Republican senator this week, participated in a hearing with the director of the FBI about the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, But in his opening comments in particular, and and in his questions too, Senator Grassley seemed more interested in Antifa and uh, the uh, occasional riots uh, last summer during social justice protests. Amy, tell us what uh, Senator Grassley said during that hearing and, and then later told you and other Iowa reporters about all this. Sure. He's I mean, and, and you've probably heard it from other Republicans, too, um, that they're talking about making sure that we're not just focusing on, you know, the, the Oath Keepers, um, uh, the other white supremacist groups that FBI Director Christopher Wray was was saying had been the ones that attacked the Capitol on January 6th. But he's saying now let's make sure we're looking at everything because obviously as a Republican, he hears far right and hears that might only include Republicans. So he's thinking, all right, who else is, is up here? So he's talking about, um, you know, so-called Antifa, so-called, you know, left-wing far left groups um, that you saw um, protesting this summer, um, obviously for a social justice protests, um, but going into everything, from you know shutting down the city block in Seattle um, to vandalizing the the courthouse in Portland, um, those sorts of things. So so he really wanted to to make sure that Director Ray was going to equally focus on both of these groups. So so Todd, uh, let me ask you: Should Americans be equally interested in in left wing violence at social justice protests as they should in right wing violence at an insurrection and attempt to undermine our democracy? And, and and as a side note, can I also ask, does that sound like a loaded question? Because <laughs> I'm, if I'm being perfectly honest, it probably is. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, nobody's condoning violence or vandalism. Those are already crimes that and people are are being prosecuted. Uh, but to sort of equate uh, protests aimed at uh, 
you know, solving a real problem, which is, you know, systemic racism in our criminal justice system and in other parts of society. And guys who came to attack the Capitol because they believed the election was stolen because the president and so many others lied to them and fed them conspiracy theories. I don't think there's much comparison between those. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, this is, you know, you look back in the, during the civil rights movement, you had politicians, you need Dwight Eisenhower, people like that say, well, there's a lot of extremism on both sides. I mean, you've got the NAACP and you've got the KKK and, oh, what are we going to do with all this violence? Everybody has to just get along. Well, and you know, you look back at that and yeah, you think that's ridiculous. And, you know, we're going to look back at this and think it's ridiculous. I don't know why politicians continue to want to play it so that, you know, when, when we, you know, recount their, their careers someday, we say, yeah, that, that was really dumb. <laughs> I mean, that made no sense. So I understand what they're doing. They're trying to provide political cover for the former president and his, and the senators that, that helped out, you know, gave an assist to the insurrection. Uh, but yeah, there's no, I don't think Americans, a lot of Americans buy this, this both sides are bad situation because one side was, as I said, was basically acting on a big lie and, and went into, some of them went into the Capitol, you know, hoping to, to kill the vice president and other members of Congress. I don't think there's, there's any comparison. What about the political calculus for Grassley, seeing as they've been doing, you know, CPAC surveys and, and post-election surveys that show a significant portion of Republicans still fully back Trump? Yeah, if if Chuck Grassley can't sort of run on his own merits after, you know, the better part of six decades <laughs> in <laughs> elected office, I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I can understand if you were a first-term senator and you were, you know, maybe you were thinking someone was going to, you know, challenge you in a primary that was a real challenge and not, you know, Jim Carlin. Uh, sure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's Chuck Grassley. He, he should, at this point in his career, he should be able to do the right thing and not fear, you know, electoral consequences. I just, I, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that he really believes this and which is, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, Todd, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine any, Republican, Iowa Republican that's out there that can seriously challenge Chuck Grassley in a primary. So, so I, I'm not paid to be a political consultant. Um, uh, so maybe I just, I can't see why it's important to, 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 to say those kinds of things, but I don't see why, where there would be a political benefit. I, I see no reason for him to be afraid of people to the right of him in a, in a primary. I guess that's what I'm trying to spit out here. Maybe he does feel like he needs to kind of protect against that flank. I don't know. Hmm. Well, we'll watch that uh, ongoing as, as this good senator, first of all, decides whether he's going to run or not, as we've talked about before, and I'm sure we will again on the podcast. But that's it for this week's edition of On Iowa Politics. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope it was worth your time. If you like the show, subscribe and tell a friend, and you can send fan mail to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And don't forget the work of everyone you heard today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council City Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and Cedar Rapids Gazette. That that thing is getting so long, I feel like I'm reading the uh, side effects at the end of a drug commercial on TV. <laughs> we need someone to read the one of those speed readers to read that part. Anyway, and don't forget everyone to watch for all those COVID-19 anniversary stories. Uh, starting Sunday. Youth Orchestra 
will play us out this weekend. If you know a talented band or Iowa musician who should be featured on our show, send us a sound file. For Amy, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
She locks her house up so tight To keep all the ladies out And who make that soup to taste so right All the ladies, they drop by They say hello in one big group But my grandma knows that they talk big lies They just want to know what's in that soup And a little bit of cloud, that's who. And a little bit of soft, that's who.